On September 12, 1995, McKay Everett disappeared from his home in Conroe, Texas. There was no sign of forced entry. It was just as if McKay had walked out of his own free will. And to this day, McKay's mother, Paulette, feels that justice was never truly served. Ransom is available now. Listen at ransompodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, Jacob here. Now that Culpable Season 1 has come to an end, we wanted to get everyone together for a roundtable discussion. Dennis, Ray, Josh, and I all met at Sheila's house and took a deep dive into new information and some different aspects of the case. In this bonus episode, you get to hear our conversation, which includes final thoughts from Ray and Josh, new information around the 911 call, additional insights from another forensic expert, and some other important details that we did not get to cover in the podcast. Let's dive in. I'm just going to open it up. Honestly, the first thing I'd like to ask is, does anybody have anything particular that you'd want to talk about? Anything new or anything that I don't know about? Well, I have a whole slew of things. What I've started doing with Josh is having one of my forensic guy answer questions directly. And yesterday, Ray and Josh were able to get on the phone. And it's, I think, very important for the families to get answers from experts directly. So we were able to talk about DNA and jurisdictions and the 911 call, and they were able to ask Mike Martinez directly his opinion, which don't you feel like that helps you a little bit? Oh, sure. Yeah, I think that with his background and then working all these other cases and knowing that he's an expert in all those areas and he's unbiased because he has nothing to lose or gain from it. It was good to hear that person be able to answer some of the questions that we really don't feel like that we've gotten answers for. Well, and when she says he doesn't know he's a third party, what I do with my experts is a lot of times I don't tell them the story. I don't want them listening to the podcast. I don't want them reading the information I have. I want them to come in with a clean slate. That way he's unbiased and He did not know half the stuff that we were talking about because I didn't want him to know it. I wanted him to look at the purely look at the science. So one of the things that we talked about, which I think this is very important, is the DNA. Well, my question was because the history of the DNA is it was probably a year after Christian's death before we even found out there was DNA. Nobody told us that. It was really a slip that someone mentioned the DNA. And then when we followed up on it, they said the crime lab, it wasn't enough of a sample for the crime lab in Mississippi to actually do anything with it. And it's such a small sample, they didn't want to waste it by trying to test it. So then when we tried to get it sent out to an outside lab that did have the technology to test it, Bilbo denied that. Then a couple of years later, we tried to get the attorney general's office. They denied even knowing where it was. 
then we asked Cassie in December, I guess, or January, about even if she wasn't going to open the case, if she would at least let the DNA be sent out. She said that she would have to talk to the Attorney General's office about it and then just never got back with us. I think they mentioned in that leaked meeting, Gypsy said, well, the reason why was because that it was such a small sample, they didn't want to use it, and then that would be a one-shot deal. We spoke to Mike Martinez and asked him about the whole CODIS argument, which was Bilbo's reason for not releasing it because he said that the lab we wanted it sent to was not in the CODIS system. And Mike's reaction to that was, well, that's kind of a crazy argument because, you know, none of these people should be in CODIS, so they're not going to get a hit anyway. And if you're saying it's a suicide and you're going to present it as a suicide, then why do you even care if it's tested? I mean, you don't ever plan on doing anything with it anyway. So he kind of backed up or validated what my arguments have been over the years. And I mean, it was good to have someone who was very, very familiar and was able to describe what CODIS is and the purpose and who regulates CODIS. And obviously he was very knowledgeable of it to give me an answer. And he agreed with us that there was really no logical reason for it not to be sent out. So to recap, they're holding DNA that may be a key to the case, and the case is closed. They have no reason to hold it, and what happens to that sample really isn't up to them, but they're refusing to give it to Ray. So why would you do that? Case is closed. So where was the DNA taken from? The gun. The gun, right. I think it was specifically like the trigger. Mm Mm-hmm. One of the questions you asked was about the particles, right? She said it was the too... The alleles? Yes. Yeah, there's not enough alleles, I may be saying that wrong, for the crime lab to test. And with the number of alleles that's there, they know that it's two males' DNA. And the outside lab we found, they said there wasn't enough alleles there to like identify that it is Dennis. But it is enough alleles there to say it is not Dennis. Mm-hmm. So you can rule out, you can't identify if that makes sense so you know i think mike martinez maybe brought up or either you brought up the fact that with the whole dna i don't know the different little dna companies 23 and me that the question was but is there enough alleles to maybe get a match with someone a family member you know that would then say okay what's in this family well okay now we have this person who's in this family that's whose name's been mentioned are you submitting it to a lab for testing we had identified Sorensen lab Mm -hmm. and not any relationship with them i don't really care what lab it was sent to as long as they had the technology and the reputation of doing quality work and then i guess what he was mentioning or what Sheila mentioned is you might could take their information and their profile or whatever and maybe be able to match it with at least a relative or someone that might be in one of those databases. They're not going to be able to get the attorney general or the district attorney to release the DNA. So that's something I think that the public should know is even though the case is closed, there is potential evidence that the state could, that's new evidence, they could run the DNA. Well, true. I mean, it also goes back to the conversation with Mike last night about my point was if we could prove that, let's just say there were 10 
homicides or, you know, 10 deaths with a gun in Meridian last year. And of those 10, did you get a ballistics report on all every, you know, all of them? Is that because that is from what I'm being told, that is just investigator 101 practice. If you have a gun, some type of crime with a gun, you match the bullet. If you have the bullet to the gun Mm -hmm. and for them not to have done a ballistics report, you know, they had the gun sent to the crime lab. They had the gun there. They shot the gun. They made sure it didn't malfunction. They tested the gun for blood. They tested the gun for fingerprints. They did everything but match the bullet to the gun to make sure that that was the gun used. Because, of course, if it wasn't, they've got a huge problem. If it is not typical of them to not get a ballistics report, then that would stick out to me like a red herring that why did you pick this one case to not get a ballistics report? But I just think that's information that even with a civil suit, you know, we should be able to file motions to have the DNA tested, to have a ballistics report done, to find out is this atypical for you not to match the bullet to the gun. Do they still have the evidence to test it? Well, as far as we know, they do. Okay. To understand this, so when you have a gun pointed at you, you have contact, hard or loose, and you have, they should have measurements of, you know, how far away the gun was when it was shot. They would go into a crime lab and reproduce what happened. And in Christian's case, it said contact, but it doesn't say hard contact or loose contact. It's important to put that in the report. So getting those reports would be important to us. Yeah, and I think it's basically just there's too many generalizations and the vocabulary they use just doesn't describe specifically what they found. It's just a generalization of what they found. No specifics like the GSR. There's It doesn't mention how many particles or what particles were found. It just says particles were found that may or may not be gunshot residue. Right. He said his reports would usually say this is gunshot residue or this is not gunshot residue. And it would give a very specific number as to how many particles would be there and what those particles consisted of. And even things like the coroner's report where the rigor is just a big circle around this underline. Is that saying zero rigor as far as the degree of rigor or is that circling? Yes, there was rigor. Also under the... I think the medical examiner, she's just got contacts under the, I guess, the distance from where he was shot. And one thing about Mike, with his credentials and his background and what he does, he looks for the best in law enforcement and other lab techs because he expects law enforcement to rise above the politics. And one of the things he brought up a few nights ago when we were talking about the GSR, and he brought it up again last night, was... Of course, Christian has GSR on him. He was shot. Mm -hmm. Why is there so much noise around the GSR and Christian? Yes, he's going to have GSR on him. I've always thought that too. (laughs) It's it's funny that that's even a topic of discussion because there's no way around that that was going to happen. Right. Um, So while we're on the subject of science, let's keep talking about that. Okay, I've got more. What else? (laughs) Science really is the entire case. Mm -hmm. So the blowback. And again, talking about the blowback on the gun and the crime scene itself, 
why is there not brain matter and things on the gun? Why is there not blowback? You should be able to trace that bullet and take particles off of that bullet from sheetrock to organs to brain matter. We should be able to take each thing that bullet hit and be able to remove it from that bullet. In Christian's case, I don't believe they did that. I never saw anything on it. That's a problem. You know, this is not advanced forensic. This is your normal homicide. Whether they thought it was a suicide at the beginning legitimately, they should have done that because that's what their job is. They should have looked at, for instance, Jay Arrington keeps saying his theory. He should be able to scientifically trace that theory. If he can't, the theory's wrong. Well, and I think that even with the projectile, you know, they have a picture of the projectile. They have a description that says something about that it looks like sheetrock material on the projectile. When Bratu talked to us about it, you know, he casually said, well, I mean, I think that that's probably some bone matter. Of course, there's blood on the bullet because it was in the bathtub, but it was never sent to the lab to determine. There should have been, I would think, some tissue or a hair or something, and it was never sent to a lab, which I think is very odd, and gotten some and all of these materials tested to say, you know, yes, this penetrated someone's head. And just going by visually saying, oh, that's some white stuff, so it's probably some bone and it's probably some sheetrock. But nobody tested it to say that, and I just think that's crazy. Yeah. I didn't realize that... Mississippi can no longer, their state lab, they don't do GSR anymore. That makes me really question why. Yeah, I think he said they outsource all of their GSR work now. There's a problem, obviously. You don't do it if you're if there's not a problem. Well, I think he also indicated that the report that they provided could answer that because it wasn't a normal report that he would expect to see because of the lack of details in the report. Right. And the report never took a stand or said this is GSR. It's just this is indicative of GSR. But it might not be GSR. And, you know, we don't think you could probably use it because we're not sure. One thing we were just talking about the blowback on the gun. I just thought about it, but there's no blowback on his hands either. And we've known that. But they say that the crime scene was cleaned and the gun was cleaned and wiped down which they would have had to have taken the gun completely apart to do that, to get it out of the barrel and stuff. But did they also clean his arms? Because there's no back spatter on his hands or his forearm or his fingers where he would have been holding the gun. I mean, if they didn't clean the back spatter off of his hands, or if they did, the GSR wouldn't be there because they would have had to clean it. That's true. That's a good point there. Had that is a good point. <laughs> yeah, that is a good point. Does anyone believe that that was the murder weapon? I haven't thought for years that it was the murder weapon. Yeah. I don't think it really matters if it is or not because there's so much that is there that says it doesn't. I mean, he didn't do it himself. So it really doesn't matter what the weapon is, in my opinion. Do you have a gut feeling on whether or not you think? I mean, I don't Because for it to not be the weapon, that means there was some sort of activity weapon, to retrieve it, which adds a whole other yeah, element If it's not there. the weapon, that's a, that's a really big deal. But even if it is the weapon, it was still decocked and cleaned and put in a different position. And whether it is the weapon or not the weapon, 
it's still wrong. Like there's still someone, if it is the weapon, someone disassembled the entire gun and cleaned it, like detailed it, because there's no prints, there's nothing in the barrel, there's nothing anywhere, and then put it back together and put it on the opposite side of them. And if it's not the weapon, then clearly it was staged, which we know that anyways, and the gun was, the actual gun was removed and they put that gun there just because it was his. Let's say that that wasn't the murder weapon. Would there have been enough time based off of the time of death for someone to drive to the Jeep and retrieve the gun and make it back before they called police based off the time of death that we know it was? Yes, it would be tight, but yes, it would be possible. The apartment to Vicksburg, if you, you know, really, I guess, book it, you could probably get it there in an hour and 45 minutes. And if, if we're saying 1230, 1230, they didn't make the 911 call to 445, they would have had time. That's also assuming that they did it after he was dead and they could have done it the night before. Right. Or any of the days after he left. What was the type of ammo that was found? Black talons. Okay. Did he normally shoot those type of... That's not around you shoot. They discontinued them in 1993. They're really made for self-defense, but they were discontinued in 1993. And I think my grandfather gave them that box, but it's not a box you, should, you just go out and target shoot with. I mean, it's, they're almost it's like gone, collectibles. It's gone, yeah. Wow. yeah. Is that, I guess, the casing that they found? Was that a black talon casing? Yeah. But it's malfunctioned, or I guess you'd say, uh, when I say malfunction, it didn't mushroom like it was supposed to, the petals or whatever you want to call it. It up. One side is flattened, almost like, I mean, what I said, it's almost like somebody shot it into a concrete wall or something. I mean, you know, there there's some significance that we don't know about with Gun Night. There is too much back and forth of stories and hiding people and, oh, I mean, how many times were people asked by different people who all was there and they kept giving three people? Then we find out there's a fourth person. Well, then they give Zach Tab's name. Then talking to Jet, Jet says, well, there's two people who we've never given the names to. Well, is he talking about two more people besides Zach Tab, or is he talking about Zach Tab and one other person? But it still means there's another, at least one other person that's there that still has not been named. And if you're just out, kids, having some fun, shooting guns the night before, there's nothing criminal in that. And why is there this big air of mystery and everybody making so many excuses about what happened that night, when it happened, how long they shot, who shot, what they shot. It just doesn't make sense to me. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist June Parker on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. 
I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. I think it's going to be interesting to see if we can get some of the phone records on the day of. So with a civil lawsuit, there is a potential that Ray will be able to get those phone records. And those phone records are very important. And the 911 call we'll talk about also, but changing the subject for a moment, you know, everybody knows how much the release of the case file and the contents of the case file affected me personally. But just this whole, we're going to release everything to the public. That's something that I don't, I'm, I don't know how you get something in place, a law in place. I know it's a long process, but I would like to pursue that after all of this because I would hate for somebody else's family in Mississippi to go through what we went through. I understand that there's things that that are relevant to a case that should be in there. I might not like it, but I can understand it being in there. But autopsy photos is, there's no reason why autopsy photos should ever be released to the public. There's just not. The one thing that we know for a fact, we have text messages from one of the people that received the case file before Ray did. And he wrote bragging, basically, that he has social security numbers, the entire case file. So there's private information that was given to a private citizen who has no business being part of the case. We have him on text saying, bragging about it. Is that how Matt caught wind of that? Because didn't Matt Miller raise hell about his social security number being out there? Right. Well, that I mean, that Joel. it was actually put yeah out there on the case file that was released to everybody. There, they didn't re- redact any social security numbers, telephone numbers, addresses, anything like that. This case has gotten a lot of attention. How many cases of parents that can't do this fight can't put up with it emotionally? Mm. So this this city is in disarray. Yeah, and that's just there in Meridian. But even outside of that, just the amount of stories that come out of there of just really weird stories where it's like no resources were put into it. And then that's just kind of the end of it. Whereas well, this hasn't really reached an end. And we have three cases. I mean, if you count Christians, three cases that Gypsy Ward has been involved in that were all not really investigated and ruled suicide. You know, I've been contacted actually just in this past week by a mother who's said Gypsy Ward was the investigator on my son's case, too, and Hmm. it was the same situation. What I found was Gypsy Ward, she solidified it in that meeting. In that particular audio that was released, she's talking about using an example, a gunshot example, 
it would never have made it into court. I don't know who thought that was okay. She should be trained better. So what I learned from that is the people that they have doing the investigations are not trained well. Well, she argued against Arrington's culpable negligence too. I found that interesting because no matter where you stand on what happened, she even pushed back against his thought of culpable negligence. Yeah, she said she thought the whole culpable negligence thing. She said they presented that idea to grand jury and they didn't like it because what if he said something, you know, days before? Like what if several days went by and then somebody committed suicide? Should that person be held accountable because, you know, they made a threat a week ago to this, you know, friend and the friend didn't do anything and then a week later that person commits suicide? But that's, that's not, not her decision, and that's also not her decision to make. I mean, again, this is back to them taking away the true purpose of a grand jury. You are playing God when you sit there, and basically you're forcing a grand jury to go along with your opinion. I mean, if you're going to do that, then just do away with the grand jury. I mean, let's cut out the, the middleman, and let's just say, okay, today we're not going to do anything with this one, but we're going to do something with this one because, I mean, that's really what they're doing now anyway. They're picking and choosing how they want something to go. I mean, I've had all kind of people to contact me and say, oh, I've been on Bilbo's grand jury before. I mean, not Christians, but I've been on Bilbo's. I've been on Cassie's. I've been on their grand jury. And when they tell you, well, there's no, you know, y'all do what you want, but I can tell you right now, we're not going to be able to prosecute this case. Well, if you're sitting, you're a grand juror, you don't know any better. You've got the DA telling you, we're not going to be able to prosecute this case. Of course, you're going to say, well, I mean, I guess we need no billet. We need to not, you know, because they're not going to prosecute it anyway. Well, an arrest could have been made, mm-hmm. right? Oh, right, yeah. I mean, that's before grand jury protocol right. too, right? right? Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> uh, you know, because that could have revealed all sorts of stuff exactly. when you take it to actual grand right. jury since they claim that they weren't working with enough evidence to prosecute i mean i would make the argument i think anybody in their right mind would say maybe nothing else comes up but one really easy way to try and obtain some more information would have been to make those arrests and in the meantime have them in holding and question them right since if you look at the npd report there sure as hell wasn't much of a line of questioning in the first place i'm not going to say they didn't question them i mean they lay out the questions they asked but that's also their fault that they lay out the questions they ask because the questions they asked are not, they go back to it's, yes, they questioned them. They did not interrogate them. When you look at what is considered Gypsy Ward's investigation, really what did she investigate? I don't see any proof that she spoke to one person. She literally did what we said she did before we the case file was released. She took the MBI report. They added a video showing that it, how it could have happened and she made a PowerPoint presentation from that. I think that what's more telling about the case file being released is not what's in the case file and what was released. It's what's not in the case file. You know, all the information that we sent them that they cherry-picked and is not in the case file. You know, the co-worker on the boat, they've had that statement, a notarized statement, for two, three years we sent it to the attorney general's office. We gave it to Bilbo. We gave it to MBI. We gave it to Meridian Police Department. But somehow or another, it didn't appear in the case file. Trent Weeks interviewed Todd's dad. You know, of course, he was not on the suicide train, as Trent used to call it. 
And none of the interviews that he did, which weren't very many, but the few that he did, none of those are in there included that was not going along with this was a suicide. Of course, the EMTs that was, was on the podcast, yeah, on the, uh, the podcast, who specifically said they told Trent Weeks that we don't think this was a suicide. You know, you need to investigate further. If anybody should know that they see suicides, I don't know how often, but pretty often they acted like they know what it should look like. And then you had something that Josh and I were talking about just the other night was we know they have Whitley and Dillon's records. I mean, Bratu told us back in 2015 that they had stacks of CDs with the tower pings and everything because he went into how it's very confusing and you can't understand it if you're a layperson. So why wasn't any of that information in the released? You know, they don't mention it. They well, don't. In the case file, they actually have the subpoena where but they, they don't get have a week of Dylan's. I think it's like a week before and a week after of Dylan's records. I don't know about Whitley's. I think there's a search warrant in there for Whitley's, but it doesn't say the, the time range that they get. But there's a time range for Dylan's, and it's nothing specific. I mean, it's all his data. But the only thing that's in there regarding his phone or any messages he may have, or, I mean, there's nothing in there besides, you know, a Google Maps picture where somebody dropped some pings on exactly where he said he went. And we know that's not how cell towers work. So if you have this this story of Whitley and Dylan with all these different movements, you know, okay, I went to Best Buy, I went to AT&T, I went to Chick-fil-A, Whitley says her and Christian rode around to Bonita, they did all this coming and going, then why not put the information that would definitively prove, especially Dylan's goings and comings, but they leave that out. And to me... That's a big red flag. The more important things are what isn't in the case file that was released. Even the text messages. I mean, they remove messages from Whitley that made Whitley look bad. Those text messages did not appear in this case file that was released. And of course, if you're the person that, that is out in Oregon listening to the podcast and you get this case file, you don't know this stuff is missing. You don't know that that's supposed to be there. But for those of us that do know, and they know, I mean, they have to have a little separate file there in their office. I mean, what about all the letters that I wrote? Not a one of them was in the case file. The FOIA request, the letters to Jim Hood, the letters to Marvin Sanders, the letters to Stanley Alexander, all the emails to Roger Wade and all, all the people And they have the letter in there where they sent me saying, okay, you can have the file for $978, but they don't have all the other letters that came after that saying, we've called and we've called and you're not answering our phone call. We're trying to set up this meeting to come see the case file so that we can get a copy. And back on the phone stuff. So MBI was actually who subpoenaed for Dylan's phone. Is that MBI? Yeah, uh, I think it was Marine Police Department. So they, they subpoenaed the phone records before they had the extraction done. MBI had the extraction done. MPD had the records subpoenaed. Okay, which, so they just had the calls, MPD. No, they had everything. When you subpoena something from AT&T, you can get the text message content, you can get the tower data, you can get the phone, everything. Every, I mean, everything that's in the extraction report, you can get from AT&T. The difference is the extraction report is going to give a snapshot of what the phone thinks happened. AT&T data will give what actually happened, what tower 
you know, this message went to at what time in that time zone that the tower was hit. So there's no way to hide, you know, to alter a timestamp of tower data or, you know, a location where an extraction report, you can just change the time and the settings and the extraction is going to give that time. So to clarify from his phone, the only thing that's ever been shared were his call records from AT&T. From Dylan? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That one, and it was a very limited. I think it was only a three-day yeah. time period. I didn't even know what to say about this. <laughs> well, like I think they're important, though, because they can identify exactly where he was, and why wouldn't you put it in there? If you're releasing the entire case file, why wouldn't you give it to the world to say like well that's what was so weird is it was obviously a piece that they thought was pertinent enough to include but there wasn't anything except a screenshot of these three pings with no well it really wasn't even the ping yeah it was just drop pins dropped on a google map where i can create a google map right now and drop three pins it's it's not so there's no backed up right there's no backup of saying here is the documentation from at&t that shows that proves that yes, the layperson is going to understand this Google map with three pins dropped, but where is you didn't have a problem with releasing autopsy photos that the layperson can't get anything from. So why can't you release AT&T data that, no, I'm not going to see these numbers and longitude, latitude, and, no, and be able to say, oh, that's that tower over there by Best Buy. Now, when, but, I, when I Googled them, the coordinates, I was able to find towers. Yeah, you can. Okay. I mean, you can't. It, what I'm they, saying is from AT&T, we didn't have, they didn't include the record of show, right? Yes, that that's my whole the, thing. The, is, the actual, here's, to be very clear, the record you could go into court with, you can't take a picture with three pings on it. You have to have the backup data to go to court and have somebody from AT&T say, yes, I swear under oath this is correct. Mm-hmm. But if you're a grand juror, or a grand jury where there is very lax, you know, rules. I mean, it's set up that way. Again, I'm going to trust the person who is presenting the information to me. And if they say, well, you know, I, I made this real simple for y'all and I'm doing this Google map because y'all wouldn't understand all that, mm-hmm. these pings That's and everything, exactly then I would say, oh, okay, well, yeah, that shows that he was at Best Buy, that he was at AT&T, you know, whatever. And I wouldn't question it. But when you know that all this other information that they've given has been I mean, I don't blame any of the jurors because they were only operating off what they were given. And I would be just like them. I'm going to trust this person sitting in front of me. They're law enforcement. They're the investigator of, you know, this is truth, what they're telling me. They have Whitley's records. They can see if her phone was broken or not because it wouldn't be making pings to the tower. If her phone was truly broken and it wasn't on, her phone records should show no activity from this time until it got fixed. So why, if you have those records and you can prove that, why not release it? And also, you have Dylan's records. I mean, am I to believe that they didn't text a single person and say, oh my God, you wouldn't believe what just happened? Or what happened, you know, yesterday or even a week later? I mean, they have two weeks of their all of their activity on their phone, text messages and everything. And they, there's not a single message in there that proves Dylan is innocent or proves Whitley's innocent or proves her phone was broken. I mean, if you have that, why not release it? And the other interesting thing, too, on those cell tower pings that I think of, too, is it's, yeah, there's no 
time stamp there or, or data to back it up. But even if there was, I thought that was interesting to include it because no one's ever disputed. Like, of course, there's a ping up here en route to Vicksburg. And of course, there's a ping right here at the apartment. And of course, there's a ping right here next to the bank in Chick-fil-A because no one ever disputed any of those things. So even if even if they had the data to back it, it would be like, to me, and okay. I mean, that's everybody knows that. It's what happened after, say, 1 o'clock at 12.30, 1 o'clock that I think everybody questions. I guess I'd be curious just to hear everybody's kind of first impression or thoughts after hearing the 911 call. And I guess, too, was that whenever the case file was released, was that the first time everyone heard it, right? Like him saying, you know, he needs to call the family over and over and over again, and then he never actually calls the family. Hmm. I mean, he calls his family. He doesn't call any of us. I mean, he had all of our numbers. And, I mean, never once sent a message out or called us. I mean, I thought that was kind of weird. And then I think in the second call when they call him back, he actually like hangs up to say he's calling a family member. What really needs to be talked about on the 911 call is what happened before the 911 call. He called his stepbrother and gave him the correct directions and address. He was there before any first responder. So he knew the address. He knew the directions because he gave it to a family member. How do we get that information? From a witness. So you said he called his brother first. Stepbrother. Stepbrother. And then EMS. Right. And then 911. His brother worked for EMS. Yeah, I don't know if he he called his brother, like his brother's cell phone, or if he called EMS to get in touch with his brother. Okay. But either way, he got in contact with his brother before he called 911, and his brother got there before the police. And they're making these phone calls on Christian's phone starting at 3.30, but yet the first 911 call isn't until like 4.45, 4.46. So you have an hour and 15 minutes of, you know, why are you waiting so long before you call 911? So just to clarify, we have Sheila, you spoke with Houston, and what's the narrative there of who all basically was there before the police or as the police were getting there? So let's remind people, I don't know if we've, talked about Houston. Houston was engaged to Whitley's aunt. And Houston was out in the field and Kimberly went out and got him. And then they went over to the apartment. Again, he's able to give them the directions and address. And Houston said Kimberly was there. Whitley's mother was there. Dylan was there. The stepbrother was there. So all those people were given the directions and address but when you call 911 you can't get it right and can we confirm that dylan's stepbrother was there before police got there or have have we confirmed that we have confirmed that we have eyewitnesses and we have several eyewitnesses you have it on tape i know that they told us that she did not have any blood on her and i know dubo said that was something that he thought was strange why there was no blood on her clothes if she was saying that she had hugged Christian. You also have to think back to they waited. Even, I mean, you know, let's just go with the whole 3.30 thing, which we know is not correct, but let's just say 3.30 when they start making phone calls on his phone. So for an hour and a half, two hours, she's been well. You know what I'm saying? Like that might be an initial reaction, but by the time two hours later and these people have arrived, you're exhausted. 
Well, and even the, you know, I spoke to the dispatcher for EMS, not the 911 dispatcher, but the EMS dispatcher who took the call. And she even said, you know, she said, I'm not saying that it was fake. She said, but it was just red flag. She said something didn't seem right. And she said when they returned back to the station or whatever you want to call it, that she, you know, was asking them what had happened and everything, and that she told them just something didn't right about this. So, I mean, I think there were red flags, but maybe people didn't know exactly how to pinpoint it, but there was red flags going up with everybody. And these are people who take these calls every day. So they kind of probably do know the, the real ones and the not real ones. Yeah, it's probably hard to pinpoint exactly mm-hmm. with any certainty what's genuine and what's not, but mm-hmm. that is the problem with it. It's just like the case itself. It's the fact that you can point out red flags all day. It's like... And then you have the chief of police who comes by but yet there's no record of that now it may be on the dispatch record but as far as any paperwork there's no paperwork where he was logged in as being there or leaving for chiefly mm-hmm. yeah i always go back to that that was one i remember asking you that before i hardly knew anything about that it was like one of the first times i was reading through the mpd report and i remember having to clarify with you i was like so it was lee that supposedly shut this down and Asking you because I was just naive back then, and I was like, "Where's so? Where's his documentation? It's got the ones for the other, the other officers." And I just was like, "There seems like there should be some sort of information about." That's a big role in it. It's not like he just showed up there. I mean, the word is that he was the one that shut down the investigation. So, so there is no that is true. There's nothing out there to ever document. So one of the questions I have. Over and over again, he wants to get off to call the family. And, of course, as a listener, you think, well, he's going to call Christian's family because Christian's his friend. And I've been told by some listeners that you were called, and I told them you were not. So can you go on the record? No, I I actually haven't spoke to Dylan since probably months prior to Christian's death. I mean, I haven't spoke to him, period, in probably six years but he never attempted to call us. There appears to be a whole different side of Dylan that we never saw. And then, of course, how he acted when Crime Watch came and how he's acted other times very well, even with, I guess you'd say, assaulting verbally Alexa and then physically her boyfriend. That's just, again, another side of Dylan. I guess kind of building on that based off of all the information you know today what's each of your guys opinion or your theory of what you think happened if you had to say here's what i think i mean i know he didn't do it to himself just because i mean this the evidence says it didn't happen that way all the theories that the police have suggested it's like they just have tunnel vision they like to look at one piece of evidence then throw a theory that fits that one piece of evidence but then that theory they suggest contradicts all of this other stuff. And a lot of the times the theories they suggest contradict themselves. What's the issue with Arrington's assertion? The issue with Arrington's? There's no blood in the barrel. There's no blood on the gun. There's no blood on the forearm or the fingers or the hand anywhere. Science. There's no science to back up his theory. Not only that, there's still gunshot residue on his hands. And they want to say they cleaned up the scene, but if they cleaned up the scene and they cleaned up his hands, they would have cleaned up the gunshot residue off of his hands. So either 
He has gunshot residue on his hands, and there's no blowback on his hands, which means he couldn't have shot himself. It was defensive. Yeah. Or, I mean, if his theory is right, then there should be gunshot residue plus blood on his hands. I think that he is basically saying suicide, but dressing it up and saying culpable negligence. And then on the other hand, he's also not saying that it was homicide. And he picks and chooses. In one hand, he says that Dylan lies, but then he grasped on to this one statement that Dylan makes about him having the gun to his head and making the statement. But that's the one statement out of everything he says that is the truth. Now, everything else he says is a lie. Mm -hmm. So why is this one statement the truth? It honestly shocks me that they didn't just go forward with culpable negligence charges. Well, to me, it's, well, I'm kind of shocked that they didn't just do that as an easy But solution. again, it's almost like you window can't. dressing because they always say, well, we wanted to charge them with this, but the family wouldn't let us. When did the family get to decide? <laughs> right. I mean, how many people out there have something happened to them and the DA or whoever goes to them and says, okay, are y'all going to accept this if we charge this person? I mean, you're never, again, do I want them to charge them with that? No. I wouldn't be happy with that, mm-hmm. but I think that they use us as their excuse of why they have not charged anybody, so they're still able to say, well, we think it's this, but oh, the family wouldn't agree to it. Should they work to be on your side and obviously serve and protect? Yeah, but as far as something like that, like charges or whatever, that, yeah, that's all mm-hmm. in their court. They shouldn't have to answer mm-hmm. to you. I mean, that's their decision to make at the end of the day. I think it's a hard decision to make when... That decision requires it only be Dylan and Whitley there. Mm-hmm. And they were both there, but who else was there? If you try and charge them with something, what are they going to say? Right. So, I mean, if you try and pin it on just them, even if it's just culpable negligence, I mean, well, that's kind of why I asked stuff. that question is because that's where my mind goes to. Because you do anything, you're opening the can of worms right. to what else could be there because everyone, I think, can agree that that was the way to find out more information was to put them in a position where they mm-hmm. kind of have to answer questions. Charging so, them for anything is just going to open it up, something that they can't then shut back down. Yeah. So, yeah. so when Mark Gillespie and I went down to Meridian and met with Jay Arrington, who invited us down, by the way, we didn't just show up and we made an appointment after he extended an invitation to open up the case file. He said in that meeting that Bilbo went to meet with Knox. And in that meeting, he talks about he wanted to go, but Bilbo went alone. And I, believe it or not, work with DAs. And I threw that out there to a DA recently. Would you drive from Mississippi to Florida wasn't that where he went, to sit down with an expert to find out what he knows and not take anybody with you and never talk about the meeting afterwards. And this particular DA said, I'd pick up the phone and just ask him. There's no reason to drive to Florida. Well, and it was atypical for for Bilbo to, and I mean, this may be any DA, I don't know, but it was atypical for Bilbo to personally handle a case he always hands them off to ADAs and no one in the office except for Bilbo is what we were told had anything to do with the case I mean he didn't hand it off to an ADA I know when we met with him there wasn't an ADA in there with us it was just him and so he kept it pretty under wraps 
and I'm I'm saying this as respectfully as I can, but why does he care as a DA for someone who, yes, he may have known you all, but he also knows a lot of other people in that community mm-hmm. that have passed away. Why this case? Why this kid? Would you all go into just what this whole experience has been like since doing the podcast and what things are like there and what you feel like needs to happen moving forward. We hit on some of this last time we talked, but just to get a take on this as well. And Josh, feel free to chime in if you want to. I know I can say it's not what we anticipated it being. And I couldn't imagine what it's like for two locals whose son and brother was lost in all this. So I'm just kind of curious to hear your candid take on it. I mean, y'all, you know, y'all had warned, I know, leading up to it, Dennis, you several times said, you know, are you ready for this? Are you ready for this? It's going to be big, you know, and I guess I was thinking more, and I think that's what you meant, too, more media-wise, you know, that there'd be all this media calling for interviews and calling whatever, and I was like, yeah, you know, I wouldn't really worry too much about that. I knew that there would be a strong reaction in the community, I didn't really expect the, I guess you'd say national. And I really probably don't even know the scope of that because I've isolated myself to just getting on social media in Justice for Christian or just the Twitter account for Justice for Christian. You know, I've never gotten on any of the other sites. The only time I know anything that's been said on there is if someone screenshots me something. I've even asked them not to do that because... You know, it just upsets me because then I want to react to that, whatever they're saying. So I kind of have put myself in a bubble. But with that said, obviously, we didn't, I don't think any of us ever expected the things to have happened that happened in the case that was triggered by the podcast. I think with it being an election year for the DA's race, that intensified everything, magnified it, you know, because it put a lot more at risk for a lot of different people. Probably if it hadn't been for the election going on, it probably would not have been so bad, I guess you'd say. And it's like I was telling Lori earlier, the good thing is, the good that came out of it, not just that I think that the podcast did move the case forward. I mean, you know, did we? is it solved? No. But I think that we are much further along than we were a year ago when y'all started. I think that, you know, we've made valuable connections and relationships with Sheila, with y'all, with other people that we never would have if we had not spoken a year ago on the phone. I think that... It was good for me. I mean, it was kind of emotional last night. Usually at 11 o'clock, I'm listening to the podcast. I didn't listen to it last night. I waited till this morning. And really, probably the only reason why I listened to it this morning was because I knew I was meeting with y'all and I knew that we'd probably be talking about, you know, whatever was said on the podcast. And I think it was putting off the inevitable because the good, too, that came out of it from an emotional standpoint was, you know, Christian was alive kind of again for three months and um people were talking about him and people were telling stories and it was um you know it was like having him back for a while and so I think that the podcast being over with is good 
in a way. I mean, there was the relief. It was kind of bittersweet because in a way I was glad that maybe some of the drama would die down as far as the, all the social media. But you also know that people will move on to the next drama and the next case and the next podcast. And no matter what people say, they'll forget again. You know, I think that it was it was nice in that standpoint. So. I've been more surprised about how, I mean, I guess you would call them the opposition has reacted. You know, it's weird to think about the government being the opposition and stuff like that. But it's just been interesting to see what they say and what they do. And, I mean, they've basically opened themselves up to show everybody the inner workings of Meridian politics. And we haven't had to do or say anything. I don't know why they did some of the things they did, like releasing the case file. I don't know what, like, in whose mind, I don't know who thought that would possibly be a good idea to release the case file the way they did it and then have a secret meeting before releasing the case file and record it and then also release that. And, (laughs) I mean, it's, I basically just, gotten to laugh at them every week when a new episode comes out because every single week they do something stupid and do all the work for everybody so i mean if anybody comes in and investigates them and when they lose elections and you know any problems that they have they have nobody to blame but themselves i mean they try and blame us and they you know can make up all the stories they want but at the end of the day everything that's happened that has been a detriment to them or their I guess, their election or anything they've done to themselves. So, I mean, it was just interesting to see how, I guess, what you would call professionals in that career field, if you want to say that, how they operate in Meridian, Mississippi. Other than that, nothing has really changed for me. I don't really get on social media much. I don't pay attention to what the gossip is or anything like that. I've continued to do what I've been doing since it happened. So... Josh has been able to kind of look at it. Like he would come up to the, my room at night, at night and go, okay, well, what happened today? And after he would talk to me, it would be like, oh, okay, you're right. And so I'd be okay. you know. <laughs> so he's kind of the person who he is the, the calm in the storm sometimes because he can kind of look at things very calmly. While I'm up here, he'll come in down here. And so he evens me out. I probably needed to talk to him sometimes before I, uh, I, I know that y'all are ready to be rid of me. <laughs> so, uh, I hope that your next people, you get a nice person, a, a nice no way. passive person. <laughs> no way. Yeah. And on that note as well, I can't tell you like how many emails, voicemails, and just people reaching out to us, messages who have just. I think really, really resonated with you, Ray, and just really their hearts have gone out for you. And I know, you know, thank you for opening yourself up, not to just us, but also to all the listeners who have been able to, to, to hear this story and uh, for their hearts to be able to, to break with yours. I think that's something that's really powerful and and hopefully something that uh, will help be a catalyst for change in this particular story. Yeah. I mean, they have really, connected with you a ton but it's also you josh we got some nods for your mic drop at the end of 14 also (laughs) so they resonate with the family and support you all and see the injustice and know that this was not 
a suicide, no foul play, end of story. They know that. All the people working against you, there's 10 times working for you. One thing I really hoped for in this, but I didn't know if we would get, is the type of engagement from the listeners that say, like, an Up and Vanish got on their show, which in turn helped them solve the Tara Grinstead case. But that's been really neat to see. I mean, there's a lot of emails to sift through, but it's on a bad day, it's encouraging to see them because, one, how positive they are, but more importantly than that, how behind the family they are and how any way I can help. Is there any sort of, are they raising funds or, you know, (laughs) anything? Can I write a letter to somewhere and this and that? And that was kind of why that was included in part of the call to the action at the end of it is to say, as a nod to that to say people have been asking this left and right so i mean here's here's a good way to help because people are constantly asking how they can help and that's just been really neat to experience and see and they're still coming in now you you say that people will move on overall what i find in my cases is they don't move on they want to see justice and they want to see it through and the fact that you all have made it so public I think you'll be surprised at how far this goes. I don't think it ends with your finale. I think it just begins with your finale. Now people have the full story and they know what to do and you've got people that will help. So I I don't think it ends. Our team wants to thank you for all the tips that have come in over the last few weeks. We've had an overwhelming response to our $100,000 reward, and we are actively following up on new leads. As mentioned in episode 15, this is not over, and we will continue to work this case until we feel justice has been served for Christian and his family, and we will be back with updates as things unfold. So stay tuned. Culpable is a production of Black Mountain Media and Tenderfoot TV in conjunction with Cadence 13. Culpable is written and hosted by me, Dennis Cooper. Executive producers are Jacob Bozarth, Mark Mennery, Donald Albright, Payne Lindsay, and me, Dennis Cooper. Associate producer, Whitney Bozarth. Audio editing, mixing, mastering, and sound design by Jacob Bozarth, Pat Kicklighter, Dayton Cole, and Lynn Blue of Resonate Recordings. If you have a podcast or are considering starting a podcast of your own, I urge you to check them out at resonaterecordings.com. Theme music and score by Dirtpoor Robbins. Additional score by Makeup and Vanity Set. Additional music by Lovers and Mad Men. Cover art is by Drew Bardana. We'd like to thank Sheila Wysocki for helping us investigate this case. In addition, we'd like to thank the entire team of PIs who have helped and continue to help investigate this case. We'd like to extend a special thanks to Mike Hines, Courtney Cooper, Mason Lindsay, Meredith Stedman, and Lance Black. We encourage our listeners to check out the Andriacchio's nonprofit, magnoliasun.com, which was created in honor of Christian. Their mission is to provide appropriate footwear and clothing for children in need, with emphasis placed on children in state custody. You can follow us on social media at Culpable Podcast. Show notes, as well as bonus content, can be found on our website culpablepodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode and this podcast, please take time to subscribe, rate, and review. 
your feedback is greatly appreciated. And lastly, if you have any information related to the death of Christian Andriacchio, please email us at tips at blackmountainmedia.net or call us at 470-300-4915.